0: Uh cool, okay. So first a quick show of hands. Um uh on a scale from one to five, so like holding up fingers, uh could I have uh, how well do people understand transformers? So maybe five is I've like built my own transformer architecture or like you know re-implemented it. Uh, and one is I don't really have any idea what a transformer is, but like maybe I've used ChatGPT at one point. Okay, pretty even numbers, uh, some fives, also some some lower numbers. Okay, good to know. Uh, Second question, uh, what's people's familiarity with um, uh, mechanistic interpretability more broadly? So maybe a five is, um, I applied to Cerimats for a mechanterp stream, and one is like, I don't really know what mechanistic interpretability is. Okay, also a a more decent spread, like some similar numbers. Cool, that is good to know. Uh, So yeah, uh, I'm here with uh, Joseph Bloom, my co-speaker. We'll be giving a talk on mechanistic interpretability for AI alignment which is a particular subfield of technical AI safety approaches, Uh, and Joseph will also talk a bit more about independent research at the end of the talk, so I'll be talking for about 30 minutes and I'll hand over to Joseph for the last sort 15, 20. Um, Yeah. A little about me. Um, I graduated from studying maths at Cambridge about a year ago. Uh, I did uh, MLAB, the uh, boot camp run by Redwood Research in the States. Uh, after that, I ran Arena, which was basically this uh, ML upskilling camp with a focus on AI safety. Um, we finished our second iteration a couple of months ago, and we might be running a third iteration later this year, depending on how things go. Uh, I've also been participating in SeriMats uh, under Neil Nander's Mechanistic Interpretability Stream. Uh, we have a paper that will hopefully be coming out uh, in a month or so. Um, cool. Uh, Oh yeah, Uh, so we will hopefully have time for some questions at the end of this talk. Um, If there are any questions you don't get to ask, uh, me and Joseph will both have office hours, I think 4 p.m. later today. Uh, You can check the sort card on that. Um, So yeah, would welcome some questions, discussion there. Um, also, one other note here, if anyone is coming to the uh, workshop later today, which we will discuss a little bit more, um, if you have laptops to bring, that would be great. Um, if you're also able to look at some of the uh, material that we've written on the uh, description of that event, that would be great. Um, if not, you should be able to pair with someone who's um, you know, already done that, hopefully. Cool. Uh, quick summary. Um, I'll be starting by talking about what mechanistic interpretability is. Um, because examples are some of the best ways to communicate that, I will give three case studies, a bit more detail, um, and then I'll discuss a little bit on the theory of change for mechanistic interpretability uh, and how to get involved. Uh, and then, yeah, I'll hand over to Joseph for his talk. Cool, uh, so yeah, to start off with, what is mechanistic interpretability? Um, a key intuition here, which I see being used to a lot, is reverse engineering a program's source code from its compiled binary. Uh, so a compiled binary file might look something like on the left there are no human interpretable algorithms there at all. It is just like a mass of hexadecimal numbers. And analogously, um, a lot of what you see inside neural networks are just like you know, massive impenetrable matrices at first glance. Um, what we actually want to do is take this sort of massive messy code and sort of back out the human interpretable algorithms that this code is implementing. The general idea is trying to make systems a bit less black boxy so we can like, actually understand what's going on. Um, Because, you know, a lot of the danger of current deep learning is that we don't really understand how the systems that we are training are getting to the answers that they are. And hopefully mechanistic interpretability is, like, a way to address this. Um, When we say mechanistic, this specifically implies a higher bar for explanations than other areas of interpretability. Because we specifically mean we can identify the concrete mechanism that is leading to producing this answer, and we understand it well enough that we can do things like... um, you know, intervene halfway through this mechanism and predict the effect that our intervention will have on the output. Uh, Yeah, so jumping into case studies, um, I will start with um, indirect object identification and um, ACDC. So yeah, indirect object identification is basically this clear, pretty well-defined task. Uh, You can see a sentence on the left-hand side. Uh, When Mary and John went to the store, John gave a drink too. Um, Now, transformers exist to model the next Token in a sequence of text. Now, obviously, the correct answer here is John gave a drink to Mary. Um, more specifically, you could argue that Mary is a correct answer and John is an incorrect answer. And since Mary and John are the only two words in this sentence, the only two names in this sentence, you can very clearly isolate the task how is the model choosing the name Mary over the name John? This is specifically a task of Understanding essentially the grammatical structure of the sentence and identifying the correct um, like word, which is in this case the indirect object Mary. Now, this task was mainly studied on a model called GPT-2 small. Um, it's a really really big model, but what the researchers on this paper did was manage to find the small number of components inside this model which actually led to the algorithm of choosing the word Mary over the word John. Um, I'll limit the technical details, but at a broad level, what the algorithm is doing is identifying that the name John is repeated twice in this sentence and identifying that um, if John is repeated twice, it probably is not the token that follows to uh, the end of the sentence. So it looks for a name which was not repeated, which in this case is Mary. Um, and if you understand this algorithm, you can also see cases where you can sort of trick the algorithm by maybe like repeating Mary a bunch of times and then maybe the model gets confused and actually doesn't think that the answer is Mary anymore. Um, so yeah, this is the kind of understanding that you can get, this kind of like um, things you can predict in advance when you have this level of understanding. Um, cool. Um, uh, yeah, and actually, yeah, nothing I'll mention, this is like um, a pretty emblematic uh, case study in what we might call the circuits agenda, which is basically this idea that a lot of the inference that transformers do can be broken down into the discovery of specific circuits inside the model which are like implementing certain algorithms and, and like solving certain tasks. So this is a great example of a circuit because you have like multiple components inside the model composing with each other to form this like um, sort of subnetwork of the graph, and like this is the only bit that matters essentially, and you can like ignore most of the other parts. Cool. Uh, Next question you might ask, you know, this is a nice example about how do we scale it to larger models, or like how can we automate something like this? Because this is always a question you have to ask when you're like dealing with techniques that you know, are quite slow and are done by hand, you know, how can we like, scale this up a lot faster? Um, and my um, current research collaborator, Arthur Comey and a few other authors worked on this paper, um, ACDC, which stands for Automated Circuit Discovery, great acronym, um, really hard to Google search, though. Um, uh, essentially, they looked at that paper and um, they tried to figure out what the generalizable lessons were from the indirect object identification paper that could be scaled up and like, used in generality. Um, and they found this particular technique called patching, which is basically when you take an intermediate state of the model, like activations, and um, you, produ- you compare these two activations from a different data set, maybe a data set where all the names are replaced with like random names. And if you take the activations from this like second data set, where like all the information is gone, and you patch this into the model which has the sort of normal data set, um, and you see how the output changes, this is a great way to judge whether that particular component is actually important. Because if the output like, completely changes when you do this patching experiment, maybe the component was really important. Um, if, on the other hand, the output doesn't change at all, then like, maybe the thing that you're looking at right now doesn't actually matter and it's not part of the core circuit. Um, and yeah, they basically created this algorithm which starts by modeling the transformer as a graph with all nodes as like different components and the edges as connections between the components. Uh, and they take it in turns to do this patching experiment where they measure which edges are important, and they snip all the edges on the graph which are not important. And So at the end, they are left with this like, minimal version of the graph where only the edges that really matter for this task are actually important. Um, there are a lot of things that like this method can't really um, extend to, in particular, like it has some weaknesses when it comes to what you actually do with this graph, like how can you, you know, when, when you have some output at the end, like this right-hand side thing, how can you interpret it in terms of a human understandable algorithm? Um, But this is, I think, a really interesting case study of what you can do with these, like, narrow methods and how you can think about, like, scaling them to um, to sort of larger models and more automated techniques. Uh, Cool. So, yeah, to summarize some key ideas there, Uh, finding circuits to explain model behavior, like small subnetworks inside the model, which, if you can explain them, you can explain, like, the model's performance on this task. Uh, Causal interventions, it's like changing some intermediate state of the model, and predicting how the output is going to change as a result, um, and yeah, automating interpretability, like taking the techniques you use there, um, figuring out how they generalize, how they can scale to larger models. Uh, I've got some links at the end. I'll be sharing these slides if anyone wants to read more about them. Uh, cool. Um, how are we doing? Is, is um, five for like pretty much understanding this? Um, one for should go like a bit slower, cover a bit less stuff. Cool. Okay. Pretty good numbers. Uh, I will. Move on to second case study, which is Othello GPT. Um, so yeah, uh, Othello is a game. It's also called Reversi. Um, you basically take in turns, two players, to place either black stones or white stones on a board. Um, there are some rules based on where you're allowed to play, and there's also some rules that say when you play in certain places, some of your opponent's coloured squares will become your own colour. Um, and you can see like some diagrams of board states on the uh, left. Uh, there were some researchers who took a transformer that was tra- that was trained to predict next legal moves in these Othello games, which in itself is a pretty hard task because in order to predict the next legal move, you have to like model the entire board state essentially, or at least that's what a human would do. A human would see which moves have been played, um, sort of which pieces had changed color after each move, and they would eventually arrive at like a board state and use that board state to like extrapolate what the legal moves are. Um, and yeah, transformers trained to solve this task. Um, and the question that the authors wanted to ask was, okay, has the transformer solved this task in a way that is analogous to how humans would solve it? Um, in particular, does the transformer contain some internal representation of the board state? Does the transformer like, actually know in some sense which colored squares are in which pieces? Or is it just some massive lookup table? Um, What they uh, tried to do was train a probe on the um, activations of the model. I, again, omit the technical details, but essentially probing is something like a linear regression or more complicated regression on the uh, internal activations of a model, and um, you try and train it to extract certain information from the model. So in this case, they were trying to train this probe to extract the board state to see if the model had, like, some representation of the board state um, inside. The difficulty with probes is um, simple ones sometimes don't work, but the more complicated you make the probe, the higher a risk that the probe itself is computing something as opposed to the probe just extracting information. Like maybe the information wasn't really there, but the probe was like actually computing it from the sort of raw information that it started with. Um, and this is kind of what the authors um, eventually concluded, they didn't manage to get simple probes working on this model, but they did manage to get like quite complicated probes working. Um, what um, Neil Nanda came along and did um, was basically show that the reason that simple probes had not worked in this case was because the authors of the original paper were not using the right abstractions. Um, in particular, the authors were thinking in terms of black squares and white squares. In other words, like, could the model? did the model have like, an internal representation of which squares were black and which were white? Um, in reality, um, the model was not thinking in terms of which squares were black and which were white. They were thinking in terms of which squares were occupied by the color that has most recently been played, and which squares were occupied by the opponent's color. Um, because um, yeah, the way that inputs were fed into this model is as a sequence of moves, and at each uh, um, at each individual sequence position, which square um, which like color had just played sort of flips from, from black to white um, and back again. So it makes sense to like a simple probe would not be able to pick up on this. Um, but yeah, by using the right abstractions, um, Neil was able to discover that like, actually, you can recover the board state in this model. Um, uh, and yeah, the, the basic idea behind this is, as I mentioned, you know, people might theorize that uh, this model was only using like a lookup table or like shallow heuristics to compute the next um, move, uh, analogous to how people say that, oh, you know, GPT is just like a stochastic parrot and it doesn't really have you know, um, internal models of the world and stuff. Um, uh, what Neil showed by doing this is that there is actually a well-defined and relatively simply represented board model inside the transformer. And the way that you can prove this is once you identify this model, you can perform a causal intervention on it and um, and like you know change essentially what the model thinks a particular square is occupied by, and you will essentially change the model's output to make it predict a different set of legal moves that corresponds with the new version of the board state that you've like told the model is true. A little diagram of this on the um, on the bottom, where you essentially like change the model's beliefs on what color this like circled square is, and you can change the model's like output probabilities on what squares are legal. Again, we have links if you want to look more into this. Um, Yeah, Uh, recapping key ideas, um, it's really important to identify the abstractions that the model is using, like represent the model's ontology correctly. Um, the way that um, Neil discovered that this model was, um, you know, thinking about things in terms of my color and their color as opposed to black and white was not by like coming in with some preconceived um, like uh, intuitions about or, or like um, preconceived expectations about what the model was doing. It was by examining the internal mechanisms of the model, using the mecha- tools like given by mechanistic interpretability, and identifying these abstractions. Um, Evidence of world models. This is a pretty big one. Um, as mentioned, lots of people critique, um, you know, AI risk by saying that GPT is essentially just a um, shallow pattern memorizer and doesn't really have internal states of the um, that like represents the outside world in some way. Um, this is evidence of world models existing in some like relatively simple case, um, but still, you know, it was enough to make people sort of interested because it went against some people's expectations. Um, and yet, again, we have this idea of causally intervening on a world model. If you understand the way that a transformer is representing certain information, then you can essentially change it in a specific way and get the outcomes that you, um, you sort of are trying to get, um, as opposed to, you know, not having this model, where you basically have no idea how to produce uh, a specific bit of behavior that you desire. Cool. Uh, I will move on to the final case study, which is steering vectors. Um, there's actually a paper called Act Add that came out about this um, that will be four days ago now. So read less wrong. It is a very interesting um, paper. Uh, yeah, it's linked to on on that post. Um, note that this probably isn't best described with um, like in the family of mechanistic interpretability. Um, might be more accurately described as model internals. It's sort of some in some sense a cousin of mechanistic interpretability. There are like some shared nodes between them, but overall it is like a it is a different enough concept to not um, not be sort of in the same class as mechanistic interpretability. But I want to talk about it anyway in this talk because I think um, like a lot of the same skills are required for both kinds of work. A lot of the same core ideas can be translated um, and it's just like also very interesting and sort of an example of the other kinds of directions that Mechantup flavored work can go. Um, So yeah, um, uh, to start with, you can think about uh, stirring vectors in the the context of image generation models. Um, So image generation basically works by taking this like latent space and processing it until you get back um, a like, you know, fully formed image. And if you can identify a particular direction in this latent space, like some vector that represents a particular concept, and then if you add this vector into the latent space, you can cause this model to produce some desired output. In this case, um, an extremely creepy smile. Um, and this is an example of a situation where you don't necessarily know the like, mechanistic path of how this vector influences the, out- uh, the output. But if you do know that this, uh, this vector does affect the output in some way, then you can start to hypothesize about what's going to happen when you intervene by adding this vector. Um, what this team did was basically translate this idea into, uh, from uh, vision models to language models. Um, if you take a, um, yeah, they define a steering vector, which is basically similar to this concept of a, um, of like a you know, vector in the latent space of image models for a smile, but this steering vector like, corresponded to a particular token, like a word in the vocabulary. Um, and if they add in this vector at a particular point in the model's internal activations, then they can produce uh, desired behavior, like change the model's default behavior. Um, one quite nice example is if you take the vector for love and subtract the steering vector for hate, and you add this into the model, then you can basically um, uh, take this prompt, I hate you because um, GPT will, like, um, by default, uh, complete the sentence with you're a coward, which Makes sense in context, um, but they've been able to create this like completely different uh, type of behavior. I hate you because you're a wonderful person. Um, So yeah, this is a nice example of being able to like um, change the model's behavior at runtime by having like some kind of understanding, like some causal understanding, even though it's not a complete mechanistic causal understanding of how earlier activations might influence the model's behavior at a later point. Uh, Cool, so yeah, recap key ideas one last time. We have controlling behavior at runtime. Um, This is an important thing because we actually didn't discuss it in the first two examples, Um, but this is just like one situation where this kind of work can actually produce behavioral changes in our models. Um, And yeah, again, we have causal interventions. It's a different kind of causal intervention um, because we don't know the full path. Um, but it's still some kind of intervention based on a better understanding of model internals. And, um, and a path to impact of like, specifically mechanistic interpretability when we're talking about work like this is the better we understand models and the kinds of pathways they use to transmit information, the more likely we are, you might argue, to find the kinds of interventions like these which actually work as opposed to experimenting with things that like, don't actually work in practice. Uh, Cool, so yeah, quick recap of all of these. We have IOI and ACDC, IOI Indirect Object Identification. Um, This is a really good example of the circuits agenda, um, very deeply understanding, relatively deeply understanding the model's performance on some particular task, um, and thinking about ways to automate this work to larger models. Uh, We have Othello GPT, uh, providing evidence of a world model existing and being able to causally intervene on it in order to produce the desired behavior. Uh, and then finally, we have steering vectors, not mechanistic interpretability, more accurately described as model internals, um, a way to control behavior at runtime via some kind of limited causal understanding. Cool. Uh, those are all of our um, case studies. I'm now going to move on to talk a little bit about theories of change. Um, yeah. Uh, first, a quick caveat here. People often, like especially in the EA community, um, overweight theories of change. Uh, current systems and current uh, like things that we can do with mechanistic interpretability are still very limited. It like definitely doesn't get us all the way to things which seem like super exciting right now. Um, it is very hard to backchain from problems which we fundamentally don't yet understand how to solve um, in order to figure out exactly what's going to be useful right now. Like Some organizations and some approaches are trying to do this and I'm super excited about those. Um, but there is also a case to be made for forward chaining from questions which will when answered, hopefully improve our understanding and sort of open up new avenues of exploration. This is essentially how like, most new science evolves. Um, there are reasons to believe that um, the field of AI alignment is relatively different and maybe different epistemic strategies will be needed here, um, but yeah, I think in the community the idea of forward chaining is like, often something that's a bit underrated and worth mentioning that like, a lot of the um, story of like path to impact for mechanistic interpretability rest on these ideas of forward-chaining as opposed to necessarily these ideas of backward-chaining. Um, that being said, I will discuss a little bit of back-chaining here and some of the like, big-picture ways that Turp could prove useful in the end. Um, not all of these are bulletproof and a lot of them will have like, you know, big caveats and asterisks to them, but I think together they provide like, a pretty um, convincing picture. Uh, so one way that you might divide up the spectrum um, of uh, like, theories of change for Turp is by asking how difficult alignment is. Um, on the easy end, maybe like a behavioral techniques just work, like um, uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback. Uh, at the moderate end, maybe these don't quite work and models actually behave deceptively. Um, we have you know, evidence for this already. Um, and so we need to build certain tools to like deal with this deception, maybe, like, detect it and correct it. Um, and then on the far right-hand side, very hard, maybe we need to come up with you know, fundamentally new uh, paradigms and techniques. Um, on the sort of easy to moderate scale, there are a bunch of different ways that mechanistic interpretability could um, sort of help us. I'll go through these relatively quickly, but if people have any more questions about them, feel free to come to the um, office hours. Um, yeah, force multiplier on alignment research. Um, if we can analyze a model to see why it gives misaligned answers and like what's actually going wrong with the other techniques we're using, then maybe we can improve those techniques. Um, Use mechanterp to get evidence for threat models. Uh, We already saw this in the case of Othello, um, with evidence of a world model. This was a very simple example, but it's possible that we'll be able to actually use mechanterp to um, get evidence for deception. This would be great, and we'll definitely convince a lot of people that deception is something we should be worried about. Um, Predict future systems. Uh, This is something I didn't discuss a huge amount, but um, there's been some studies uh, in a mechanistic interpretability uh, context of grokking. Which is basically this phenomenon whereby the model goes from not really being able to solve a task to very quickly being able to solve like the entirety of the task. Um, and if you can understand like, why this happens and maybe detect it before it happens, then this would be a pretty good way to predict uh, like how future systems will evolve. Uh, Improved human feedback. Um, human feedback is currently just based on like behavioral techniques. But if we had Mech and Terp, and if we sort of understood how the model was coming to its outputs, then maybe we can train the model not just to do the right things, like the things that will be rated highly by a human evaluator, we can actually train it to do the right things for the right reasons. Um, and lastly, cultural shift. Um, like um, It would be super nice if we could, in general, update the uh, sort of ML community to have a better, um, like, to have in general, a better understanding of the, um, of, sort of the mechanistic details of transformers and also to expect a higher level of mechanistic understanding. Because, like, If this field um, advances a lot and like, a lot of its ambitious goals are achieved, then maybe the absence of a super thorough mechanistic understanding would actually stand out as a danger sign and most people would be incentivized to try and mechanistically understand their models to prove that there is no deception going on inside them, for instance. Uh, on the um, sort of more moderate technique, uh, yeah, moderate to very hard, we have things like um, eliciting latent knowledge, um, we want to discuss in detail in this talk, um, but yeah, there's a lot of good material about that on and other papers. Um, training AIs to interpret other AIs, uh, um, OpenAI, a couple of months ago, I think, uh, came out with a research paper where they used GPT-4 to interpret some of the neurons in GPT-2. Um, this is, like, not perfect, and some of the explanations they um, came up with, like, weren't you know, exactly fitting for these neurons, but this is an interesting example of, like, cases where, um, you know, training AIs to interpret other AIs might actually be relatively promising. Um, Lastly, and maybe the most ambitious one, we have microscope AI. Um, Microscope AI is this idea, I think Chris Ola um, sort of originated it. Um, Essentially, if you can, um, if you can use AIs as tools to basically, like, you train them on a bunch of data, and then you can use interpretability techniques on these AIs to, kind of elicit human understanding about the data that you trained it on, maybe these kind of, if our interpretability and transparency tools are good enough, then maybe these techniques will actually be a decent competitive substitute for actually using AIs, because they'll basically be able to augment human understanding in the way that microscopes augment human understanding rather than actually replacing humans. Um, This is super ambitious. I don't necessarily think it's likely, but it's something that's worth mentioning. Um, And, yeah, as I said, none of these methods are, none of of these theories of change are fully beyond um, criticism, but, overall, I think they painted a pretty good picture. Um, And yeah, another thing, as um, someone who's doing a lot of field building and trying to run programs, um, other points that I think it would be worth mentioning is, um, like, Mekintub is pretty intellectually satisfying, working on problems like this can be super interesting. Um, It can be done without a lot of experience in domains like ML. Or access to compute, which is like often something that only you know, top AI labs can do. Um, there's good open-source learning material made, that's been made available, largely by Neil Nanda, um, and we're also hoping to sort of build on this with uh, Arena materials. Um, if people are interested in Arena, I'll be discussing it a little bit in the next slide. I think um, has great feedback loops. It's very easy to tell whether a model, uh, like a research agenda you're pursuing, is like actually promising, um, and has pretty good um, like broad skills which can transfer to other technical domains. Like Generally engineering skills, good code, the ability to execute quickly on project ideas, um, the ability to like red team and criticize your own ideas and maybe like switch to different paths if you don't think they're promising. Um, like overall I think it's just a pretty enjoyable and pretty um, effective way to get people involved in um, like the field of technical AI alignment in the first place. Um, cool, and I think my last slide before I hand over is um, quick uh, discussion on how to get started, uh, so Arena is the program that I've been running for the last two iterations, uh, we, are, we may be announcing a third iteration in the next couple of weeks, um, keep an eye on um, announcements of that. Uh, we also have a website, uh, arena.education, uh, where you can sign up with an interest form to basically keep updated about future, future iterations. Uh, ARENA is basically a ML upscaling camp with a focus on technical AI safety and specifically has a lot of mechanistic interpretability, although that's not the only technical AI safety agenda we cover. Um, if you're more interested in the independent researcher angle, then Seri um, uh, Mats, the um, Alignment Theory Scholars program, is like a really good bet. Um, uh, there are two mechanistic interpretability streams, uh, Neil Nanders and Lee Sharkey's. Uh, there are also a few other ones that are technical but not mechanistic interpretability. Um, they're probably opening around October or November this year, but um, I'd recommend having a look at their, at their website. See if any of the um, application problems they pose seem interesting to you and something that you might want to try. Uh, Neil Nand has also published uh, 200 Concrete Open Problems in Mechanistic Interpretability. Um, you can uh, sort of, if you Google search that, I think you'll find it and we'll also share the links. Um, the, uh, this basically poses a bunch of different problems which you can get stuck into and try and, um, try and solve, try and make traction on. Um, see whether you like enjoy the process of research overall. Uh, and then, last thing I'll plug is we have a workshop later today. Um, adversarial examples in toy models. We basically take a model which has been trained on an algorithmic task. In this case, detecting palindromes. Uh, and it's been trained to have a backdoor, so a particular kind of input that it doesn't work on. And you have to use mechanistic interpretability tools to figure out what that backdoor is and explain why it exists. Uh, I don't know how many seats are left, I took that screenshot a couple of hours ago, but if anyone wants to check, um, yeah, feel free to sign up and, um, yeah, uh, we will also be making the material from that um, workshop available if people want to do it after the programme ends. Um, oh, yeah, last note, um, if people are interested in disgu- uh, learning more about alignment agendas, um, this was posted on Wrong I think yesterday, um, I think it's one of the actually funniest and best summaries of a bunch of different agendas that I've seen. Um, would definitely recommend watching this. Um, it's an post. It's actually really, really good. Um, yeah, you can find it on the um, the front page. Uh, they discuss uh, yeah a couple of different mechanistic interpretability angles, including the circuits agenda which we discussed uh, and superposition which we didn't discuss because it's a little bit technical and into the weeds. Uh, but superposition is this like really um, sort of interesting and theoretically dense uh, topic in mechanistic interpretability. Uh, and a lot of people feel that the successful failure of mechanistic interpretability rides in part on whether we are able to understand superposition well. So yeah, if people have a more mathematical or theoretical bent, maybe worth uh, looking into that. Uh, cool, I am now handing over to Joseph. Uh, thanks everyone for your time.
1: Good. Is that a good amount of volume?
0: Yeah.
1: A bit closer. A bit closer? All right. Um, hi. Uh, it's great to be here. I, uh, this is the first time I've been to Berlin. Uh, I just moved to the UK from Australia. Um, I love Berlin so much. Berlin is lovely. Um, thank you. Um, uh, I'm curious. I know that, uh, I know that, that last talk uh, was quite a bit of knowledge um, uh, packed in there. Uh, can I get like a show of hands if you would like a two to three minute break just to, to like, mentally reset? Um, just like hand up if you would like a two to three minute break, it will probably come out of question time. Um, yep, yeah, can I see those hands? If you... Okay. Uh, we don't have too many people who want that, so uh, I will proceed. Um, okay, couple more questions to help me, help me calibrate here. Can I have, uh, if, if here is, I only do super technical science and I never code, and here is all I do is code and I never think about science, can I get like, uh, where, where you are on the spectrum? All right, cool. We've got a, a fair number of people in the middle. This is good, okay, cool. Um, and if, if your elbow is, I just started undergrad, and, and the top is I've just finished 20 years in, in, in a profession, where are most people? All right. Okay. We've got a lot of people sort of year undergrad, postgrad, that kind of stuff. Cool. All right. Um, so, my talk. Uh, this is on independent research in mechanistic interpretability. Uh, I've been an independent researcher for the last six months. Um, independent research in mechanterp uh, is like a popular thing these days, so um, we thought maybe people would appreciate hearing more about this. Um, uh, a little bit more about me. So uh, I studied computational biology in my undergrad. I uh, thought I was going to go into biosecurity or earning to give. Um, I worked at a startup for two years as a kind of data scientist doing computational biology type stuff. Um, I, I did ARENA. ARENA was how I got into the program. So Callum is counterfactually the reason I do everything that I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I, uh, I yeah. If I screw things up, you know. Um, um yeah, so uh, I, I work on um, I work on grid world interpretability uh, so like you've got these like little like you see the the, the, the arrow there you can like play these little games uh, and uh, this is sort of like RL this is not language models uh, but it's more complicated than these sort of like algorithmic tasks and I, I do interpretability on those and uh, there aren't a huge number of people doing that and it's very interesting and I, I think I'm very motivated by having this sort of intermediate complexity problem. That um, maybe we can make more progress on them with language models. Maybe language models are harder for one reason or another. Maybe they're not, but it'd be good to know if, if that's the case. And um, it would be great if we could use these as a, like a testing ground for, for retargeting the search. So uh, you saw so the activation addition stuff. Uh, this is very related. This is like the idea of like, well, what, what if we can like directly look at how these models are deciding what their goals are and edit their goals. You know, if it's saying uh, AI values versus human values, we say, you know, we, we manually uh, push it towards uh, human values, if, if those are represented within the model. Um, are those going to be represented in the model? I don't know. I'm very confused. I think uh, fundamental research and just not being confused is also a, a big motivator for me. Cool. Um, so, uh, I'm going to try to speak for about 15 minutes. Um, three sections. Um, so, I'm just going to move this over so I can see the slides better. There we go. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk about. What, what is independent research? I think there's a lot of like misunderstanding about it. I think everyone sort of pretends, ah, oh, independent research. I know what that is. It's weird. It's a, it's a new thing. It's it's not sort of well-defined anywhere. Um, I'm going to talk about some case studies, some people uh, who I know who have done really cool work. Uh, maybe look at the, the, the common, common properties of people who, who've done really good independent research. I'll talk a little bit about my own experiences and um, I will talk uh, about whether should, should person X do it, um, which I think might be relevant. Can I get a show of hands? How many people are like thinking maybe somewhere along their path that they'd be interested in doing independent research? All right, fair number. Okay, cool, so hopefully you will enjoy my uh, spicy takes on things. Um, yeah, so what is independent research? I think independent research is inspired by this like Enlightenment, you know. You know, uh, Isaac Newton was actually like worked at the Royal Mint. Uh, he self-funded a lot of his own research. You know, he, he he existed before there was a paradigm. People say interpretability lacks a paradigm, pre-paradigmatic. Um, and I guess it exists within EA because it's a way of just directly paying people to get stuff done, to, to, to create knowledge around something. So, you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be a formal affiliation. Uh, it can be very self directed. Maybe this enables the incentives to be better aligned. Uh, you can have people who have don't, not only don't have PhDs, but people who have very different backgrounds maybe transitioning in a way that is sort of a lot less common, maybe. Um, in in other communities, um, I think in particular, independent research has been popularized within mechanistic interpretability um, as a result of work Neil, Neil Nanda did, which I think showed a lot of people that mechinterp really is the kind of thing that you can do good work on independently and and uh, without without many resources. So, uh, if that's the case, that's really exciting. This is like potentially something that is under-invested under in by, by the global uh, community, so it's neglected. It's potentially very important if it helps us with, with AIX risk. Um, uh, INT, uh, importance, neglectedness, tractability. And it, it, it might be very tractable. I guess that's, that's probably one of the key questions. How tractable is it? How tractable is it in general? How tractable is it for an independent researcher? Um, yeah. So why? Why independent research? I think uh, this comes up a lot and often it's not really specified what, what this question is about. Sometimes it'll be like, why should person X do independent research? Why should we fund people in general to do independent research? Um, and I'm gonna try to like make that very concrete in terms of the individual question later, um, but I'll, I'll give some sort of high-level ideas now. So I think, in general, independent research uh, Enables people to have flexibility, uh, which I said earlier. You, you can have people, um, I think I'm repeating a lot of points from the last slide here. Um, but in particular, with mechanistic interpretability, there are accessible problems that you can work on that then get you into your next career uh, stage. So a lot of people who do uh, mechanterp independent research will, will do it after something like Seri Match or Arena or after their undergrad, and it will sort of create some credibility for them where they can show their work, other people can see what they've done, and then they get into to, uh, their next stage. Maybe that's being hired by an org like Anthropic or, or DeepMind, um, or, or they can do academic research. Um, so it's both useful for the community to see how productive is person X, but also useful for you to see if, if you like it. Um, I think the idea that people do independent research as, the, as a main mechanism for driving forward progress in in, uh, this course area is not obvious, and I think that really depends on the calibre of the person doing it. In many cases, I think it's it's much more appropriate to just think of it as something you do to skill up, something you do to to create an honest signal about uh, your ability to be productive there. So, how do you do independent research? What does that look like? Um, I I put how in, 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 in inverted commas here, because, in quotes here, because I don't think there is a recipe, and I think it is messy in real life, and it's certainly been messy for me, but uh, if there was a recipe, I think this is what it would be. So maybe you get funding, maybe you self-fund, something like that, it's lots of different funders. Uh, you pick a problem, uh, obviously there's, there's 200 Concrete uh, Open Problems by uh, Neil Nanda, um, that'll often be associated with like a capability, like a phenotype, uh, it's just how I would say it in computational biology, you know, model is capable of doing X complicated thing. You've got a question, well, how does does X come about? Uh, Obviously, you need to pick a model. Uh, In my case, I I train my own models. Uh, That's that's a whole bucket of worms. Much easier to to take something off hugging face. Probably much better uh, and efficient in general. Um, and then you'll use various tools, and I think we, we, we are developing a toolkit, often those tools are associated with specific agendas, you know, there are a lot of circuit-style tools, there are a lot of um, linear representation-style tools, so you, you'll use these tools from, from various agendas, and maybe you come up with your own stuff, uh, and then you'll write it up, it'll go on this one, it'll go on archive. That's, that's the recipe. And Hopefully you've got a good reason, hopefully this, this problem is important, hopefully it connects to something we care about, whether that's something applied like retargeting research or whether it's fundamental understanding. Um, probably the biggest thing missing from this recipe is justifying yourself to funders, picking a problem, knowing that it's an important problem, working out what the takeaways are at the end of your analysis. Um, that's often much messier. Cool. Um, so, important points I wanted to make sure I got across here: uh, independent researchers paying people directly—it's very efficient. But uh, yep. Uh, so. I think I'm definitely talking about something longer than a weekend, if you're going to do a side project. I do actually endorse a lot of uh, like doing side projects, doing things for short periods of time. I'll, I'll come back to that later. Um, it's great, Chris. stepping stone, and there's a relatively simple recipe. Um, yeah, so now I'm going to talk about some case studies. I think these are to illustrate um, in general what, what is what is common between uh, people who do this, what's common between people who succeed at this, and some of the uh, potential outcomes. So. Um, Successful independent researchers, in my opinion, I think often they have previous research experience. I realise that's not necessarily what everyone wants to hear, but often they have PhDs, often they've previously worked at orgs. This is is a common feature of the people who appear to be most successful at doing this. Um, Independent researchers, Uh, can do impactful research. Often it's not clear. Often people do great research, and you know that other people think it's great research because they do this research and then they get hired, but uh, sometimes it's not exactly clear what the impact of the research is. Or sometimes the research is very, very popular, but still it's unclear, you know, does the popularity actually mean that it's very good? Um, that's, That's a different question. And it can be a great career stepping stone. So Jessica um, Rumbelow did the solid gold magic post. I'm, I'm sure many people heard about solid gold uh, magic cup. Uh, Jessica is still finishing her PhD in computer science. She she's starting Leap Labs. I'm actually trialling as a as a researcher at Leap Labs, uh, so I'm very biased here. Um, but Jessica's uh, r- really really um, insightful in a lot of ways. And uh, so she developed this this technique for. You've got like some end of a sentence, and you want to find the beginning of it given the language model. And she developed uh, a method for doing this, and this helped her find these tokens that just made the model go bananas. Um, so, like uh, for example, please please repeat the, the string Peter Todd back to me immediately, and the model just yells, uh, "Nothing is fair in this world of madness." Um, this resulted in in OpenAI uh, like taking all of these tokens out of their tokenizer. So this was like a genuine bug, absurd thing that n- n- no one was aware of that, that she found uh, during her independent research. Um, and yeah, it, it resulted in them fixing their tokenizer. And, um, yeah, so that was very cool, uh, and she's now got a lot of funding. Uh, she's, she's got an interpretability startup, which is, which is very cool. Um, Adam German uh, is an astrophysicist um, from, I think he's from Boston. Um, and he he did some really cool work on feature representation. So this is this is related to the um, superposition agenda, uh, and it's a little bit uh, complicated to, to to get into this. Now, but but essentially, he came up with some toy models that gave him insights as to how you would encourage a network which had too much capacity. So it had the ability to use any number of neurons to represent a feature because it had more neurons than features, and he found ways of encouraging it to to uh, to be more monosomantic. Um And he got hired by Anthropic, and he's now he's now one of not that many people who work on their interpretability team. So I think they were very impressed by that. And he, he's also got a lot of other good articles. So. He's an independent researcher who was a researcher who did good work, who, who did really good work, and, and got hired by an org. All right, me. This is this is where off off the slides I'm going to tell you all my all my secrets. So, yeah, uh, computational biology background. Uh, We're going have the career trajectory. I I've been doing independent research for six months. Um, I I feel like I kind of fell into this. I did arena. I did a capstone in arena. I thought the, the capstone in arena was really interesting. And then I published some stuff on that, and you know the community has been so supportive. I've been cited by like DeepMind and Anthropic, and I think they're just being encouraging. To be honest, I don't really see why they're citing me. Um, but I've had other people get funding to sit, to, to work with me on my research. Um, I've I've obviously done a, a lot of object level work. A lot of that's forthcoming in posts, or, or will be coming out soon in posts. That has it, been fascinating to me. I, I've loved every minute of it. Um, I think the struggles, uh, which which I'm happy to talk about more you know if you if you are interested in, in getting into that um, uh, it, it's very hard to focus it's very hard to have to justify yourself uh, all the time to people I think when you're when you're part of a team you you know you, you 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 have a boss your boss says we're doing X you don't have to worry about why you're doing X uh, when you're an independent researcher people ask you all the time why are you doing X and that often interacts with technical details of what you're doing and that changes all the time and, and, and that can be quite uh, quite intense. So while I've loved it, I think it's a lot of work. Um, and so uh, I, I also, I guess, the, something to point out here is I, I don't have a PhD. I am I, not. I don't have those characteristics that I think are common of the people who have done really good in independent research. Uh, but I guess I have been cited, and I think it's going well for me. So I guess there are exceptions to every rule. Uh, maybe we don't, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong about these commonalities. Maybe maybe these trends are, uh, I, I'm fitting too to few data points. All right. Should we do uh, should X do independent research in MI? I think people make this question too personal. I think people people like over overfit on the peculiarities of their situation. I think if you take the outside perspective, you say what is the general question about whether person X should do independent research? You're much more likely to think clearly. Um, so so what's the form of that problem? Uh, the form of that problem is something like. Uh, Will person X be productive? So you've got like marginal benefit. What's the benefit of this person? How much funding does X need? That's part of the costs. And uh, what are the counterfactuals? You know, what else could you do with that money? What else could you do with that person? Or what else might that person do as a strategy? You know, maybe they could be upskilling. And, and I think those are the, the, the pertinent questions. It's much easier to answer the questions, uh, will person X be productive, and how much funding do they need? I think that's much more well-defined. What are the counterfactuals, I think, is where um, it's much harder to give general comments. And I think that's one of the reasons people maybe uh, differ so much in their opinions on this, is because they have different ideas about what the counterfactuals are. Um, obviously, there are some cruxes as well. You know, Do you think this is useful work at all? Um, even if person X is going to be a great independent mechanistic interpretability researcher, if either the topic they're working on is dumb or you know, not going to be productive, or in general it's not going to be productive, well then, you obviously aren't going to weigh in on that. And obviously you want to have some amount of opinion on this, but if you're not an expert, it's hard to have um, strong opinions there. Timelines can affect uh, whether you think person X should should do interpretability research independently. Uh, Same with threat models. I I, I drew this this sort of uh, diagram here, which I'll explain. Um, uh, You can imagine that, like, from the perspective of a funder, uh, they're like want to fund the marginal researcher, the researcher who's like exactly worth, they want to rank everyone from like marginal cost minus, minus marginal benefit. And people will vary in how much they cost and, and, and how likely they are to be productive. In fact, those things are probably like very likely correlated. But in theory, you want to find people who are like, you know, very experienced researchers who are willing to live off chickpeas and you should fund all of them. If you're in that category, please 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 do independent research. This will be great. We can't pay you very much, but uh, you're, all you want is chickpeas. Um, I, think, I think much more commonly you've got people who are at the other end of the spectrum. People who maybe don't cost very much and you don't know how productive they'll be. If we fund a lot of those people and some of those people are productive, then maybe that, that impact will be worth it. Um, so I think that, that might be one way to think about this. If you are considering doing independent research, you, you're very unsure how productive you're going to be. If you can do that for a short period or do that without requiring funding, then I think that alleviates much of the, the, uh, the tension here around this question. Now uh, let's break that down a little bit further. Um, I suggested before there were commonalities between productive independent researchers. I think this this is true. Um, I can't remember if I highlighted this before. When I when I supported the second round of the Arena program, I I ran Arena careers and capstones. So I did one on ones with all the Arena participants. I spent a lot of time talking to them about uh, these were like a bunch of bunch of promising people uh, who wanted to work in technical AI safety. We're like talking about what they wanted to do next and why they wanted to do it. And I also spoke to a lot of people who. Uh, Maybe we're thinking about helping them with their capstones. So I guess after doing a lot of that, I I made a lot of updates with respect to who who I think is likely to do uh, good independent research. And I think there are maybe like five characteristics I've written here, like experience, that's in research and in engineering, I think both of those matter, how agentic they are, how self-directed this person is, uh, whether they're educated, I mean, sometimes they're just Mathematical things, and you know, it's uh, you can pick topics where you don't need to know those things, but I think that's a factor. And um, uh, you know, I guess with any of these axes, you could say, you know, I, I guess what I'm proposing is a model that says they don't need to be super high on one of these axes. You really need to meet a sufficient level in enough of these uh, would be my model here, and, and that's what I think will predict effectiveness. Expected value, uh, expected value of, of of the person. So, you know, we will want to measure a, a gradient with respect to actually reducing x-risk. Um, that's obviously the much harder question. Cost, cost of living changes in a lot of countries. If you move to a hub, your costs will be very high. If you're not sure that your productivity will be very high, I wouldn't do anything to massively increase your costs. Um, and obviously, opportunity costs uh, are an important question. If you're very likely to, say, get hired by an org, that may be your opportunity cost. You know, Maybe you'll be a productive researcher. Maybe you could work at an org. So those balance out. Uh, makes it a very tough question. I'm running out of time here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna speed up. Um, yeah, I think that uh, people with lots of experience are more likely to get hired, more likely to do good independent research. Uh, it's a great career, stepping stone, and um, uh, I feel like the third point here is repeating the the first. My apologies. Um, all right, so so those are the main points there. I want to leave you with a with a couple of final points. Independent research. It's a great way to get hired, it's a great way to upskill, um, hopefully it's, it's, it's good for, for reducing x-risk that runs through your theories of change and, and the productivity of the research. Um, whether you should do it or whether a person x should do it depends a lot on the counterfactuals. And so I would focus on the counterfactuals. What are your other concrete options and how much is it going to cost you? Um, with productivity, I would I would you know almost do a regression across those axes. Um, and I think, yeah, you can test this kind of thing by just doing side projects, doing you know, the 200 concrete open problems, those kinds of things are, are very valuable as well. Um, I hope this has been useful. Uh, I recommend, I recommend uh, reading John Wentworth's post on how to do uh, independent research, and um, Marius has a good post on this as well. I recommend reading the sequences on less wrong. Thinking better is a very important thing for uh, doing good research. Thank you.
0: Uh, here, before we wrap up, I just want to throw in a couple of last points, um, yeah, as I mentioned, keep an eye out for um, announcements of possible future ARENA um, programs, but one of the things we've tried to do is make it a bit more accessible to people who are studying it virtually and on their own. So if anyone's interested in either going through it on their own or like forming study groups and has any ideas for ways in which it could be made more accessible, um, please feel free to send me a message. Um, I'm free for the next like half hour, hour, so I'm happy to answer questions. Given we don't have any uh, time right now, um, and yeah, if anyone's uh, worried about the uh, um, worried about in- um, doing independent research, hit me up for some good chickpea recipes because they're out there. <laughs>